Hello, we're pleased you've been able to tune in to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. Welcome again to the program. It was his magnificent hour and in John chapter 17, he gives the disciples a completely different perspective of what was about to happen because in the world's mind, this was the defeat of Christ. In recent weeks, we've been exploring the Gospel of John in the New Testament of the Bible. It describes a groundswell of not only opposition to Jesus, but a hatred of him and what he stood for. The forces of evil were having a field day as the religious leaders sought to have Jesus dealt with permanently. But their plan was not God's plan. When Jesus' hour had come, they perceived it to be the hour of their triumph. Not even close. I invite you to stay tuned as together we witness Christ's magnificent hour. And what I want to do today is perhaps give you an insight that I believe John is giving us as we go through his gospel. So this is as we've seen the last gospel that was written and and it's the last gospel so that we understand John's not trying to retell what the other three gospels Matthew Mark and Luke have already told us he's actually very concerned about something that happened one day really one day before Christ went to the cross in fact of the 21 chapters five of the chapters are dedicated to this dinner that Jesus had with his disciples five of the chapters so this is a big deal and it's a big deal because in those five chapters Christ makes some emphatic statements to his disciples and as I've already I hope pointed out to you that one of the very first things he did and it begins in John chapter 12, uh, 13 that when he gathered his 12 disciples in that loaned upper room of a, a, an unnamed Jerusalem house one of the first things he did was he washed their feet and then the next thing he did was he cast Satan out of the room. John chapter 13 verse 27 says that Judas who in verse 2 John tells us when the devil had put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus there's the idea and let me tell you ideas are the only realm that the enemy of our soul has to attack you. The Apostle Paul, in describing this battle in 1 Corinthians 10 and so on, he talks about the strongholds of the enemy that he wants to set up in our minds. And Paul says, therefore, we take every thought captive. And when we understand this, we realize that the way we wage war or should I say battle because the war has been won as I will point out in a moment but as we battle the battle is taking place in the realm of ideas that come into our minds and the thing that we see in the gospels is that even good people even believers can have the enemy whisper into their soul and put an idea that's wrong into them remember when Jesus asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? And, and Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus turns to him and says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. His father had whispered something into Peter's soul. And then Jesus says this, I'm going to Jerusalem and the, the chief priests and the scribes, they're going to kill me. And Peter says, no. No, 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 you're not going to die. Remember what Jesus then says to the one who just heard the whisper of God? Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking the thoughts of God, 
but the thoughts of man. Even good people can have things slip through and that's why we need the word of God as a guardian over our minds. Interestingly, our mental health, which we're all concerned about the, the, the rate of mental health for people at the moment. And I mentioned in the e-news, pastors this, this week, that I had a professional in the field come and see me uh, this past week. So concerned about the rate of mental illness particularly among young people. He said in the 1980s, we, it was somewhere around about 6% of young people reported some kind of mental illness, whether it be depression or suicidation. 6% in Launceston. He's talking about Launceston. He said, but now the official stats is, and every GP will know this, it's one in five. In other words, 20%. That's the official stats. He says, but I'm telling you as a clinician, it's closer to 50%. Here's the interesting thing. The word psychology, which we, we hear there is a crisis of psychologists and so on, even psychiatry, the root word is a Greek word. It's the word suke. Silent P at the front of it, suke. And it's translated into English as soul. You see, what we're talking about is the condition of your soul. And this is what he said to me. We can't solve this problem. He's a clinician. We can't solve this problem. This is fundamentally a problem that the church needs to step into. Can you please help? In Deuteronomy, God warned through the prophet Moses, here are the things that will bring blessing. And it's a very short list. Obey me, keep my commands, and variations of those two. And then it says you'll be blessed in your going out. You'll be blessed in your coming in. You'll be blessed, 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 blessed. And if you've read Deuteronomy from chapter 26, you realize you get into 27 and 28 and it says, but here's what will happen if you don't. And it says, you'll be blighted in your mind. And I look at that and I go, there is a spiritual realm here that even the world says has to do with the soul. Now I'm saying that to say that when Jesus says in John chapter 13, he's telling his disciples just after he washed their feet, he mentions this and little wonder and I put it in the pastor's desk that Jesus could say that he was deeply troubled deeply troubled and so when he mentions this to them he can see into the spiritual realm and just a few verses later it says Satan entered into Judas and the moment that happened Jesus looked at Judas and said you can go now and whatever you do do it quickly. And John tells us that we all thought, well, I thought he was going to give money to the poor or something like that. Jesus sent Judas out of the room. And by doing that, he was sending Satan out of that room too. Because Satan can't be everywhere at the one time. He's one being in one place at one time. There is nothing in scripture that says Satan or a demon can read your mind. Nothing. This is a great advantage for the child of God. Because the moment the enemy whispers a false idea into our mind, with our mind we can pray. With our mind we can turn to God. With our mind we can remind ourselves of the truth and set up a hedge of protection for our mind and thereby our soul. So what we're looking at now 
in John chapter 19 is the very thing that John has told us. And we're going to see this, this expression. I'm calling this message Christ's magnificent hour. His magnificent hour. Because in John chapter 17, Christ prays a prayer where he tells his disciples through that prayer. They're listening to this prayer. It says in John chapter 17, Jesus lifted up his eyes and presumably lifted up his hands and prayed out loud, Father, glorify your son that you may be glorified. And he says, give me back the glory that I had with you from the foundation of the world. Oh God, this is so important. Father, so important because this is eternal life. John 17 verse 3. This is eternal life that they know the mind, that they know you, the heart, that they know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The grand idea, the magnificent idea, the God, the creator of the universe would send his own eternal son into the world to take on a body of flesh Sinless, as we heard Trevor share this morning over communion, who would take our sin, our guilt, our shame and pay the price of justice for it. It was his magnificent hour. And in John chapter 17, he gives the disciples a completely different perspective of what was about to happen. Because in the world's mind, this was the defeat of Christ. This was the humiliation of Christ. I mean, after all, Christ would have been stripped naked to carry the crossbeam through the streets of Jerusalem, up to Golgotha, where laid down on a pole, nailed to that pole through that crossbeam, and then hoisted up about a foot off the ground. And I know there are paintings where he's wisping his hair and, and he looks all calm and relaxed. But the prophet Jeremiah says, we looked at him and we could not see that it was even a man. We saw his back and it was a ploughed field. We saw there was no form in him anymore. He was beaten and he was illegally doubly whipped. No one, was, no one was to receive more than 39 lashes, but Christ received it twice over. When he, he couldn't even carry that crossbeam, you know? He couldn't even make the distance out of the city of Jerusalem to Golgotha. He couldn't even do it. Simon of Cyrene had to help him with it. He was so weak from the beating that he'd received. We see that the soldiers pulled chunks of his beard out of his face in their mocking of him. I think Mel Gibson has only given a shadow of the brutality that was inflicted on Christ in his movie, The Passion of the Christ. But one of the things that Gibson does is he shows the demonic realm inflicting Christ. And I want to highlight that to you in a moment, not because I want to put it into the text, but because I think it's there. And I want you to see that this was his magnificent hour. It looked like his hour of humiliation, but it was his hour of glory. It was his hour of glory. And if you're thinking, what, it only went for 60 minutes? No, 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 no. That's not the way Hebrews used the word hour or day even. It was a time. It was his magnificent hour. It looked like he'd been defeated, but it was his hour of victory. It looked like all hope was lost, but hope was just beginning. This was his magnificent hour. 
from the outset of John's gospel, this hour was in view. In John chapter 2, we see at the very first sign of Christ, the very first sign proving his divinity, it says, his mother said to him, they've run out of wine. Jesus says, woman, what has this got to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And we read this expression, my hour, the hour, an hour. John saying, his hour, all through the Gospel of John. And we have this strange occurrence just before. It's the trigger that says, okay, now we've got to go to the upper room. Here was the trigger. Andrew and Philip come to Jesus and say in John chapter 12, there are some Greeks who've traveled from Greece to, to, to meet you. And Jesus says, well, let's have a look at what he says. This is what he says. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What? Where did that come from? Jesus had a whisper from his father. When the world, being the nations, start to come to you, to witness what is about to happen to you, representatives from around the Roman world come to Jerusalem at this time and they see you on that cross. Now, now, Jesus goes on to say, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground. And he's talking about his own body. He's talking about his life that he's giving up. In verse 27, now is my soul troubled because he knows what his hour is going to involve. And these movies where Christ is barely breaking a sweat, not a drop of blood on him, with blue eyes and blonde hair, are a joke. Now my soul is troubled, he says. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. This hour. No wonder his soul was troubled because he knew what was going to happen to him. He knew that he was going to be whipped, pummeled, beaten, kicked, spat at, mocked. And add, add to that, that there would be a host of principalities and powers, which I'm going to refer to as evil spirits, not demons, above demons, who would come to Golgotha and surround Jesus during this time and torment him. And he could see it. We pick it up in John chapter 19, verse 16, where Pilate says that he is king of the Jews. And they said, we don't want king of the Jews crucify him so it says he delivered him over to them to be crucified not that they did it but that roman soldiers did it but he delivered it over to their request so they took jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull golgotha which in aramaic is called golgotha even this is symbolic. There's going to be so much symbolism here that we're going to see. But Jesus was rejected by his own people, despised, rejected, going out of the city. Jerusalem was rejecting him. It was a picture of that. And they crucified him with two others, one on either side. And we read that. And John is skipping over all the details that some of them I've just alluded to you that the other Gospels have. That Jesus was whipped, punched, beaten. The centurions had a little game they played. Whoever can knock the prisoner out with one blow gets all his possessions. 
You know why centurions are called centurions? Because there's a hundred soldiers under their charge. You can imagine a hundred hardened soldiers smashing the face of Christ. No wonder the prophet said, we couldn't even recognize him as a man. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, but it was out of the city, just to the west, which again is symbolic because you head west to meet with God. If you know anything about where the temple was, the east gate was where you entered and as you got further in, you got holier and holier in that precinct and the holiest of holies was as west as you could go. Jesus was crucified west of Jerusalem. The symbolism is rich. And it was written in the three languages of that world, Aramaic, Latin and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. In other words, shut up and get out of here. I'm over with you. And your petty envy of this man who's done nothing wrong, Pilate said. Bradley, you asked me about prophets and what they said about Jesus. And here's one from around about 1000 AD, sorry, BC, BC, AD, is after Christ. Actually, we'll talk about that in a moment. Because of the cross, we have BC and AD. Jesus split time. King David, who lived around about 1000 BC, the psalmist, he prophesied this hour, this hour, this magnificent hour of Christ. He prophesied it. And this is how Psalm 22 verse 1 says, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? This is what Jesus said from the cross and David said this is what he will say from the cross. In fact, we will see from Psalm 22 that David at a time in 1000 BC when no one got crucified, we will see that David prophetically states that Christ would be crucified. Why are you so far from me, saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day and you do not answer and by night and I find no rest. On the cross, in this magnificent hour, the Father turned his back on his Son as his Son became sin for us. And Christ cried out what David said he would cry out, why have you forsaken me? Because he'd become sin. And Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, had never known that. From all eternity, he'd never known that. And in this moment, as he became our propitiation, there's a big word, but it means we deserve the punishment that he got and he became our substitute. That's what it means. He experienced that the wrath of God on him. And he described himself that I'm a worm. I'm not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. David prophetically says Jesus would state. 
All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusted in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. They mock. And you might go, we don't remember hearing that. Yeah, it's not human saying this. The prophet Amos, in speaking of the evil spirits that controlled the pagan religion, calls them the cows of Bashan. And David, some time before this, says of Christ, Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. And I am going to say that is language that the Bible is using to describe evil spirits. Not demons, super evil spirits that Paul the Apostle calls principalities and powers. Surrounded Christ and they are the one who are mocking him. David voicing what Christ was going through and would go through 1,000 years into the future said this, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. 1,000 BC, David prophesied Messiah would be killed by crucifixion. I can see that all of you, your jaws have dropped to the ground right now. And fair enough, because this is amazing. This is amazing. May the light of God's word break into our soul as we realize what Christ did for us. And you might be thinking, Andrew, this does not sound like victory. This does not sound like glory. This sounds like defeat and humiliation. Yes, I know. That's the world's perspective. But Jesus saw it as his hour of glory, his hour of triumph. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots, David prophesied of the Messiah. David told us a thousand years before it happened what Christ would go through for us. May that realisation sink into your heart. Let's come back to our text in John. We pick it up in verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. In other words, this tunic was valuable. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots. For it. That's exactly what King David prophesied 1,000 years before this event happened would happen. To see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. And in case you don't know what King David said, John is going to quote it for you. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were, note these four women, his mother, And his mother's sister, and we don't know her name, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, or Mary of Magdala. Jesus is in agony. He is struggling to breathe. It's the whole point of crucifixion. It's not like the paintings. 
It's not like straight legs. No, 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 no. The, the, a, a nail, a, a nine-inch nail went through both feet with the knees bent. Crucifixion was the bending of the knees and the hands up. And so to breathe, you could do this. That's the only way you could survive the cross. And eventually you would give up through sheer exhaustion. And then the vultures and the ravens would come and pick your flesh off and you would be there for days. And Romans loved this because that was their statement of saying, you mess with Rome, this is what happens to you. Don't you dare mess with us. Jesus is there and he is having to lift up to talk. (laughs) He's heaving. What would you be thinking about at this point if this was you? Look at what Jesus does when he saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. He said to his mother, Mother, behold your son. Do you get it? Do you see what's happening here? In the midst of the pain and the anguish of what he's going through, he cares. He cares. The other gospel writers tell us that Jesus saw the Romans who were spitting at him and mocking him and hurling abuse. And what does he do? He lifts his eyes. He turns to his father and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Because he can see the next layer, the next dimension. He can see the evil powers manipulating these people. They knew what they were trying to do. They were trying to kill God. And Jesus prays for the forgiveness of these Roman soldiers. And even the religious types who were there. He sees that they were manipulated. He sees it. He sees that he is surrounded by what the prophets called the bulls of Bashan. Father, forgive them, he says. He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And then eventually they, that is John and Mary, his adoptive mother, went to Ephesus to see out their days. This is alluded to in Revelation chapter 12 because when you leave Jerusalem, the land flowing with milk and honey, and go out of Jerusalem, you go into the wilderness, the Bible language is. And in Revelation chapter 12 it says, the one. Then I saw one, a woman, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a diadem of twelve stars who's about to give birth to the one who will rule the nations. It's talking of Mary. And it says that God would protect her, and he did. And she went into the wilderness and was protected. And it's a picture of John taking care of her in Ephesus. This is what he did. The six hours or so on that cross was then culminated, the other gospel writers tell us, with an an unusual and untimely eclipse. And an earthquake. And with the earthquake, the veil in the temple was torn apart. And estimates are that every year they put another curtain there to add to the veil of separation between God and them. And it would have been about a foot, 30 centimetres thick. And the whole thing ripped apart as Christ died. Don't tell me this isn't weird. Don't tell me that when you become a Christian, there will never be anything weird that happens to you. There will be weird coming out your ears. 
After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture. And in the Gospel of Mark, it wasn't that John says Jesus will say something, but in a moment we'll see how Mark describes it. But knowing this, that all was now finished. I'm going to introduce a Greek word to you because it's cool. It's the word tetelestai. I mean, you'll be saying this word all day from now on. Tetelestai. It means it is finished. We'll come to that word in a minute. But here it's introduced. Tetelestai. Knowing that all was now finished and to fulfill the scriptures, Jesus said, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood by there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a... You may have skipped over the next two words, the number of times you've read this. John could have said a stick. The soldiers could have had a spear. They could have lifted it up on a spear. But John tells us it was a hyssop branch. You see, the hyssop branch was what was used at the Passover when you took the blood of the lamb and you put it on your doorposts. And now we have the hyssop branch being put on Christ, who is the door. And you can't come to God unless you come through that door. The hyssop branch. Little details like this should cause you to have your... If your chin was already down on the carpet, it'll probably go a dint into the carpet now. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said... Ready for this? Tetelestai. It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And the scriptures had already told us, Jesus had already said, no one takes my life. I lay it down. He knew right from the start this was his hour. This was his mission. His body was already going through the process of inflammation, white blood cells being sent through his body, racing through his body. There was all kinds of puffiness happening because of what, was hap- what had just happened to him. This is an important point. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross. Why should the bodies not remain on the cross? Because in Deuteronomy 21, verse 22 and verse 23, it says, Anyone who is a criminal who is hanged on a tree cannot remain there overnight. This is an abomination. And so the religious types knew we can't have any of these people hanging on a cross at Passover. This is not right. It would bring the curse of God upon us. (laughs) So they had to kill the two criminals and Jesus, so they thought. For that Sabbath was a holy day, a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their body, that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first two. And I already told you the only way they could survive is by lifting up to breathe. And the moment they can't lift up, they just suffocate with broken legs. And the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. There is a song called Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. 
And in that song it says, and he was pierced because he's the rock. And water came out. A picture of what Moses did when he struck the rock and water came out. And he who saw it, John, has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows what he is telling is the truth. That you may also believe. This does not call for you to go, well, that was nice. That's a nice historical account. No, no, no. John's saying, I'm not giving you history. I'm giving you the truth of eternal life. This is the one who has taken the penalty of your sin, guilt and shame and borne it through his punishment that, so that you don't have to. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Not one of his bones will be broken. Psalm 34 verse 20. This was prophesied again by David. And he also, put, he also mentioned it in Psalm 22 which we read. And again another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. And that's Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah writing about 300 BC. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And today we have one of the weirdest pieces of burial cloth in the world, known as the Shroud of Turin. It is super weird, super, super weird, because it has a nuclear radiated image of a man who was crucified etched into the fibres of it. It is super weird. And you might want to have a look at that because it is, did I mention super weird? The cross became the means by which Jesus conquered sin, death and the forces of evil. S.W. Gandhi wrote this short poem, very short, about Jesus in this moment. He in hell laid low, made sin, he sin overthrew, bowed to the grave, destroyed it so, and death by dying slew. Christ conquered sin and death. Fanny Crosby wrote a hymn, and one of the verses of that hymn says, Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain, free to all, a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. And it does. No matter what challenge you're facing, the cross of Christ is your solution. Because on that cross, God demonstrated his unconditional, immeasurable love for you. Not just his, I love you love, but... I'm here as your saviour, as your redeemer, as your rescuer. Whatever problem you have is my problem. Give it to me. Come on, let's stand. The cross is your answer. You may think that Christianity is just about being religious. How wrong could you be? Christ, the Holy One, was crucified for you and me. He died a death that we no longer have to die. He bore a shame that we no longer have to bear. 
and in his name is life. If you'd like to listen again or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. For tonight's program, select The Last Gospel, Part 24, from our online store. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, Christ's hour had come, but not for his destruction. The cross became the means by which Jesus conquered sin, death and the forces of evil. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.